Man, it's gonna be a mess today. <laughs> it's gonna be awesome. So, hey, today, I'll, I'll be honest with you, um, we're both in the series in Mark right now, you guys and us too, and we could have landed on the exact same passage today, but I decided to take a wrench and just chuck it and say we're not going to do that. Because to be honest, from a personal place, I've kind of been stuck on Easter still. Uh, we're about six weeks, five, six weeks removed from celebrating the resurrection, and on Resurrection Sunday for us, like I labored back and forth between what text to use, because like we talk about, like at Easter, there's no reason for us to guess what we're going to talk about. We're going to talk about the resurrection, but there's also these events that took place after the resurrection that, that my heart kind of gravitates towards, because there's so much beauty in that, there's some things that had to go on, some conversations that had to take place that actually point us to the fact that Jesus just didn't die for sins, and he just didn't kick death in the teeth. But he also offered us something that no one else could offer, no other system could offer, no other religion could offer, no other other thing that we could make could offer, and it's something called restoration. This morning, we're going to look at the life of a guy named Peter. You may have heard of him. I hope that you have. Um, and we're going to bounce around. We're going to do a, a little bit of storying, a little bit that takes place over the course of, uh, of maybe a few days, up to 40 days. We don't exactly know. Post-resurrection, we know that Jesus appeared several times, but the timeline, we just don't know. We know that he uh, was raised from the dead. We know that he began to appear, uh, but there's just there's not a lot of clarity on when he did it within those 40 days, but we know that he did. And so this could take place over the course of a few weeks, up to about the time that we have uh, post-actually celebrating Resurrection Sunday last month. And so if you would, let's pray, and then we're going we're gonna to jump in. Some of these passages are going to be up there, and some of them are not, so, so just bear with me this morning. Let's pray. God, we love you. We thank you for your grace, your mercy, your goodness, all the things that we couldn't manufacture, but for the things that we are eternally grateful for. Thank you for your word this morning, God, that we can trust, that we can more than just buy into, but we can lay our lives beside and use it as a guide uh, and as a plumb bob for how we live and how we follow you. Uh, thank you for your word this morning. Thank you for the way that you're going to speak, and thank you for allowing uh, two church families to participate together in seeing your kingdom grow today um, and just celebrating the things that you've done. We love you, and it's in your name that we pray. Amen. In Luke chapter 22, uh, verse 31, we're going to start, and we're going we're gonna to pick up kind of at the tail end of the Lord's Supper. Um, it was right, but you know, just a little bit before Jesus was arrested. Jesus was put on trial. Jesus was crucified. But he had some time uh, with his disciples. And at the end of the Lord's Supper and at the end of a little argument about who is the greatest, he had a conversation with this guy, Simon Barjona, son of John, Peter, Cephas, however we're going to call him. And he said this in verse 31. He says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when others have turned again, and when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. And Peter said to him, Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. And Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny me three times. Skipping over same chapter, verse 54, uh, this is after they had taken Jesus. It says, then they seized him, led him away, bringing him into the high priest's house. And Peter was following at a distance. And when they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat down among them. Then a servant girl seeing him sat uh, in the light and looking closely at him and said, this man was also with him. But he denied it. Woman, I do not know him. And a little later, someone else saw him and said, you are also one of them. But Peter said, man, I am not. And after an interval of about an hour, still another insisted, certainly this man is also one of him, for he too is a Galilean. But Peter said, man, I do not know what you are talking about. And immediately, while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. 
And the Lord turned and looked at Peter, and Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. From this point on, so many things occurred in a very short amount of time. Jesus was put on the mock trial. He was accused of things that he didn't do, but he did not speak up. According to Isaiah 700 plus years ago, and according to the moments that were happening right now, he took it. He took it because he knew that from this point on, he was paying the price that we could not. And he just did it. And all the time, the same Peter who said, hey, hey, don't, don't tell me I'm going to deny you. No, I'm going to follow you to the grave or to prison. Either way, Peter had already denied him. Peter had already fulfilled the words that Jesus had done. And Peter was broken. It says that he went out and he wept bitterly. Uh, the differentiation between Luke's account and what we would find in Mark is that in this place, it actually says, and Jesus looked at him. Apparently, they were at a place, he's in a courtyard, and he could look to the place that Jesus was beginning that trial. And when Peter did it the third time, Jesus' eyes caught his. And man, that busts me. <laughs> I mean, imagine that moment. I won't deny you. No, 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 I'll go to the grave. I'll go to prison with you. I definitely won't deny you. But then in that moment, when you do again and again, Jesus' eyes catches yours. Imagine his heart. We talk very often about like uh, a hermeneutic of looking at scripture as to, you know, who it is written to, why it was written, to what the extent was. But we also need to think about the personal hermeneutic of trying to feel what they felt in this moment, putting ourselves in their shoes. And for the moment, like try to think of Peter's heart, put yours against his and imagine, imagine just the crushing weight of what you've just done. And then over the next few days, following from a distance and looking at this Jesus whom you've just denied, but you dearly love, hang and die for your denial. And then after that, he's, he's raised from the dead and uh, he has some interaction with the disciples, but it's almost like it's, it's more revelatory than it is conversational. Just to let them know, I have risen. I am here. I did what I said that I was going to do, and, and there was even some, some nice trickery going on. He would walk with them and blind their eyes so they didn't know who he was. And then all of a sudden, they would remember, and poof, he would disappear. I think Jesus was funny at times. But either way, over the next several days, like it was just, man, every possible emotion that you could potentially feel, Peter was going through them all. And then we find ourselves uh, at the end of John. After the resurrection, in verse 21, I'm going to read several verses, and then we'll start with verse 15 on the screen. But just to set it up, it says, After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin, Nathaniel of Canaan and Galilee, and the sons of Zebedee, James and John, and two other of his disciples were together, and Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. I can resonate with that. I'm good with that. I love to fish. I fished with very little success this weekend, but... Uh, man, yeah, I get it. I'm going fishing. We'll come back to that statement in a bit. But they said to him, we'll go with you. They went out, got in a boat, but by that night, but that night they caught nothing. I can understand that too. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? And they answered him, no. And he said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. Now at this moment, I would think, that a light in Peter's brain went off. I would think if, if we look back to Luke chapter 5, very, very, very eerily, not just eerie, but almost verbatim circumstance. Peter's in a boat. Peter's fishing. Jesus gets in the boat. They caught nothing all night long. And Jesus just says, well, try one more time. Just put the net on the other side of the boat, which in all reality would make no difference in any ordinary circumstance. 
Like, I don't know if you've been fishing all day and never caught anything, but going to the other side of the boat generally ain't going to do any good. But either way, he said, cast the net on the right side of the boat because you've been doing it all wrong. No, I'm kidding. And you will find some. So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved, referring to John, said to Peter, It is the Lord. And when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garments, for he was stripped from work and threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not that far from land, but about a hundred yards off. When they got on the land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid on it and bread. And Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared to ask him, who are you? They knew that it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so would the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus had revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. And what's about to occur um, is kind of the first real conversation. Post-resurrection, like really the first exchange more than I am here. You can believe in me, Thomas. You can touch my scars. Uh, but there's about to be like a real conversation just between Jesus and Peter. And so if rewind in your brain just a little bit, everything that's led up to this, everything since Jesus and Peter's last conversation, Jesus and Peter had this conversation, Jesus said, you will deny me before the rooster crows. Mark says twice, but either way, before the rooster crows, you will deny me. And Peter's last words to Jesus was, no, I won't. <laughs> Not going to happen. And now they're about to have their first post-declaration, post-denial conversation. And again, putting ourselves in Peter's shoes, like try to imagine this Jesus whom you've followed for several years, whom you've tried to model your life after, whom you've tried to love dearly, whom you've tried to listen to and soak up every word, even when you were an idiot. He's sitting on the beach and he's wanting you to come and sit with him. Imagine all the emotions going on in Peter right now. Imagine his, his gut. Like We often talk about feeling our emotions deep in our gut, like that gut feeling. Like imagine that feeling in Peter going through his brain, all the things that Jesus might say to him or all, the, all that stuff. And this is how it happens. It says, and when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, he said, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said, tend my sheep. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved. He was hurt. And he said to him a third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. And he says, truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you to where you do not want to go. This he said to show what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. A couple of really interesting things. I mean, a, lot, a ton of stuff. I mean, this could be a month-long series on just several questions of Jesus, but I think the thing that we need to focus on is this. Restoration looks way different than we think. Restoration looks way, 
way different than we think. We, we talk about very frequently that Jesus is so other than. Jesus is so unique. Jesus is so out of this world. He's not normal. He's not the way that we would have designed a Savior. He's not the plan that we would have made for salvation. He's completely other than. And the way that he fixes things, the way in this case that he restores things, is not the way that we would do it either. The first thing I think that we need to note, and this may seem obvious, but it needs to be said, is that Peter sinned. Peter sinned. And you're like, well, yeah, duh, he did. No, 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 it just, it just needs to be a simple confession that Peter sinned. Peter sinned in a couple ways. Number one, he gave Jesus his word. He's like, I, I'm not going to leave you. No, I'm going to follow you to the grave or to prison. Either way, I'm going with you. Well, he broke that word. He scattered. Just like Jesus said that he would, just like the prophets said that he would. I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will scatter. Same way, he scattered. Even though he said I wouldn't. And then the second way was that verbal, very public, just denial of Jesus. Peter sinned. No way around it. And what we need to see in that moment, the reason that we need to see and confess what Peter did, because we need to come to that place and that conclusion in our lives too, as often as possible, as often as we sin, we need to confess and do the same thing, because what we need to understand is what sin does in the life of a believer. Because pre-Christ, while we were yet still sinners, not yet classified as saints by the work of Jesus, there was a wall between us and Jesus. We couldn't climb over it. We couldn't go through it. We could not tear it down. We could not even see around it. It was that big, that insurmountable, and there were no human means for us to take that wall down. But as a result of Jesus, he tore the wall down that we could not by grace through faith, and it's a beautiful thing. But what happens in the life of a believer when sin comes in, be it in the form of verbal denial or be it in the form of breaking our word or our declarations to Christ or whatever it may be, transgressing the very purpose and plans of God that we call sin, what happens is the wall is not rebuilt, but what happens is, is our senses to God are numb. My ability to see God's plan is veiled. My ability to hear God's voice is muted. My ability to feel the very touch of God is numbed and the nerves kind of go cold. Like sin in the life of a believer prevents us. It, it, it kind of dumbs us down to agree to a degree to keep us from hearing the very will of God and remembering what God did. Proof of this is that, like, yes, Peter, I do feel like Peter had remorse. It says that he went out and he wept bitterly, but yet uh, the restoration was not yet complete. And so in the moment that that everything had kind of calmed down, the, the chaos of the resurrection, what did Peter do? He said, I'm going fishing. Now, I think he said it like a country boy. I'd like to imagine that he did, like, I'm going fishing. But what Peter was really saying, he's like, I'm going back to what I used to do. Because not only does sin numb us, it makes us forget. It makes us forget. It makes us forget that God called us out of something and into something better, into a place that is bigger, into a purpose that is more magnificent. And what sin does when it gets into me, a follower of Jesus, is it does make me forget. Peter forgot. I'm going fishing. He forgot that not only his plan had been wrecked and changed, but his purpose was made completely different. And he was no longer after fish of the fish kind. He was after fish of the people kind, according to Jesus. He said, come, follow me. I will make you fishers of men. And Peter followed. Peter forgot. 
same thing happens to us. Like, it, it is that simple. Like, I think we try to complicate the relationship between us, God, and what sin does. And the reason that God says, be holy for I am holy, avoid these things. He wants us to avoid these things, not because they're on some checklist that we can't possibly transgress, but he wants us to hear from him. He wants us to see his plan. He wants us to feel his presence. He wants us to ever be surrounded by him and know that he is there. And he knows the very thing that our hearts wants most other than him will dumb down all of those things, mute all of those things, prevent them from being felt at their fullest and most magnificent. So he says, do not. Peter, Peter sinned. I'm going fishing is what he said. I think that's the first that we need to, to see. The second thing that we need to see about this passage is not only that Peter sinned and the effects of that, but I think we need to understand that restoration is not restitution. Restoration is not restitution. And you say, well, those are a lot of syllables. But here's what I mean. If we plotted out this course as to what it means to be restored to someone that's bigger and better than us, uh, we would most definitely provide a list of do's and do nots. And until you've completed this list of do's and do nots, you are not restored. That would be restitution. But would we call it restoration? Jesus operates on a completely different economy. He operates on this, this book of values that says something like this. You can't possibly do enough to earn what I'm offering. You can't possibly undo the sin that you've done. There's no amount of restitution that you can pay. So I will. Jesus understands the only person that can write that check to pay our debt is him, not us. And so he's not asking us for restitution. This is evident in the, the beauty of the conversation that occurs between uh, Jesus and Peter, because what this restoration looked like uh, was, was not a, a list of do's and don'ts, do these and then come back and talk to me. No, it was a very relational, personal conversation on a beach, around a fire, over breakfast, with words involved, face to face, heart to heart. Restoration, not restitution. One seeks to make us pay the other seeks to make us whole. Oh, <laughs> one seeks to make us pay. Jesus seeks to make us whole. Restoration is not about me making amends. It's about me being brought back into the will, the purpose, and the plans of Jesus. And at this moment, Peter wasn't there. Peter had just been on a boat. He had returned to where he was previously before Jesus called him out of his first boat to leave it and to follow him and not go back. Jesus was offering restoration on a beach by a fire after breakfast, face to face. And he didn't give him a list. He just asked him those questions. And what were those questions? Pretty interesting questions. Because I think about all the questions that Peter may have envisioned Jesus asking or the questions that I would have thought that Jesus would have asked me in the same situation. And, and they would have gone something like, why would you do that? What were you thinking? How could you possibly? How dare you? All of those questions, but that's not what he asked. He actually asked, do you love me like I love you? And Peter responded, well, I love you. He said, well, feed my sheep. 
Then he asked him a second time. He said, do you love me like I love you? And Peter kind of, maybe he perked up a little bit. He's like, well, Jesus, you know all things. You know I love you. And then he asked me, he's like, Peter, do you love me? And at this point, Peter gets irritated. He's like, Jesus, why do you keep asking? Yes, yes, I love you. And he says, well, if you love me, return to purpose. Return to the plan. Go back to the path that I put you on when you said that you would follow me. Now you're like, well, that's not all those words. All those words aren't there. We're not reading in the scripture. This is an Jesus. This is just... This is the meaning of what he said. He's like, look, I gave you a purpose. I put you on that path. If you love me, do that. The other thing that we think about resolution and restoration is we think it's there to make us feel better. We think it's there to it's the scratch of personal guilt. And while it does, while it does erase guilt, like we look at Isaiah 6, he says, look, behold, my guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. Yes, it takes away both of those things. If we're holding on to guilt for past sins that we've confessed, that's not on God. That's on us. He says, let that go. But restoration is not about itching the scratch or scratching the itch. Sorry. <laughs> it's about setting us right, putting us back where he had placed us originally. Instead of going back to fishing, instead of going back to who we were before Jesus, remembering who Jesus made us, remade us into be. Restoration, making us whole. And I think just like Peter at some point, in the course of our restoration, in the course of us being made more like Jesus, we have to answer the very same questions. And it's not, why did you do it? It's not, what were you thinking? It's not, how could you? It's just, do you love me? Do you love me? Because here's the issue at hand. We have two options when it comes to Jesus. We can like the idea of a Christ, or we can love Jesus. We can like the idea of a Christ or we can love Jesus. If we like the idea of a Christ, um, that's going to mean maybe some of our habits change. Maybe some of our practices are going to change. Maybe where we are on a Sunday morning or a Wednesday night could change. Yep, habits could change. If we like the idea of Jesus, if we like the idea that someone can fix me because I can't fix myself, and and it's good, I, I think that's a great idea. We might like the idea of a Christ, and so some of our habits change. But the problem is if we just like the idea of a Jesus... It's just our habits that change and not our hearts. Jesus didn't come to change our habits. He actually came to make us new, to give us new purpose, new identity, new life. From liking the idea of Jesus to loving actually Jesus, having that relationship, it goes from habits and ideas to change to actually you, me, us, we, our hearts being made new and changing. If we like the idea of Jesus, we're going to focus on our mission. Our good works, our good things. Because we look at Jesus and we're like, yeah, he's a very inspirational figure. I want to do like some of the things that he did. So I, I think I'll go and I'll feed the poor. I'll, I'll take care of the needy. I'll take care of the widows. That's great. It makes me feel really good. But the problem is that's not what Jesus asked us to do. No, no, no. Jesus asked us to actually love him, love the things that he loves. And when we love the things that he loves, we don't just go and do our own mission, but we jump into the mission that he created. We love the people that he loves. We love them as he loved them. We love them until the end of ourselves, like he did. It's not about changing our mission. It's about being on his. Like the idea of Jesus, it's still about me. I actually love Jesus. It's about him. Do you love me? If we like the idea of a Christ, it's very likely that we're going to work really, really hard to build a kingdom. But the problem is it's going to be our kingdom. 
It's going to be our banner. It's going to be our mission statement. But for us confessing that we love Jesus, it's about just saying that I don't love me nearly as much and I love you more. And so um, I want your kingdom to grow. I want your kingdom to thrive. Even if it makes my kingdom die. Even if it makes my banner burn. We want his. Because even as you've seen like in a glimpse, and it's the reason that marriage is used so frequently as a comparison between the, the bride and the bridegroom and us and Jesus, us with our spouse. When I love my wife, I love the things that she loves. When we love Jesus, to a much higher level, we love the things that he loves. Do you love me? Feed my sheep. Do you love me? Tend my lambs. Do you love me? Feed, feed my people. Take care of my people. The force of admission of this is that we've sinned just like Peter. And we need to look at him and we need to say what he did was sin, but we actually need to be able to look at ourselves and say we've, we've done the same thing. Maybe you weren't in a courtyard and Jesus was looking at you from a place where he was about to be crucified and, and you denied him and even called down a curse. Maybe that wasn't you, but, but I promise you, me, us, we, we've done it. We've done it. We've sinned. And Jesus isn't sitting there tapping his foot, asking us why, what for, how could you do that? He just wants to know, do we love him? Do we really want the restoration that he offers and only he offers? Um, and that he is for us. And I do. Like, I think, I do think it's this simple. If we love Jesus, we do his work. We do his mission. We love the things that he loves. We go after those and, until we can't. But anecdotally, how many times can we look back and can we see exactly what sin has done, like in the life of us who follow Jesus? Very often it's just, just a degree that it pushes us off course. Like we want to stare hard at Jesus. We want to focus on Jesus. We talked about that this week in our men's retreat. We focus on him. We focus on his focus. We look at him. But it just takes that one tick to push us off a little bit and for the first day when that sin knocks us off course we're just we're just a few inches from that path but as day two comes it's four inches by day 12 it's 20 miles because we've let it just sit there we haven't dealt with it and so that small knocking us off course has led us to be way out in the middle of nowhere and Jesus just says I want to bring you back to my path I want to bring you back to my plan that I have for you. I want to restore you. I want to make you whole. I think it starts with just, man, seeing our sin, confessing, repenting, turning from that. But what we're turning from is we're turning of a place, turning from a place in which our sin has caused me to be off course, to be out of the will of God, to turning back to Jesus, his way, his plan, his purpose, seeking to be made whole. I want to read Luke 5, 1 through 11 again. It says, On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing into him to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake, Gennesaret, and he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's or Peter's, he asked him to put out a little far from the land. And he sat down and he taught the people from the boat. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing. But at your word, I'll let down the nets. 
And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish and their nets were breaking. They signaled to other partners to, to the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both boats and they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I'm a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of the fish they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, and partners with Simon. And Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. From now on you'll be catching men. When they had brought their boats to land, they left everything, followed him. I think Jesus was just simply asking Peter, Peter, remember what I called you to in the first place. Remember that I called you to leave this, to have a new mission, a new plan, a new purpose, a new master. Man, sin and Satan wants us to hear quite the opposite. Sin wants us to hear, and Satan wants us to hear, you screwed up. You're no longer worthy. You're no longer able. You're no longer wanted. And Jesus just says, nope, not true. If you just love me, really love me, not like the idea of me, but love me, just go and do what I've asked. Go and do what I made you to do. Go and do the purpose that I made for you before you were even here. Go and do that. There is one last idea that has to be stated. And this may not be true for us with the exact specificity that it rests here. But at the end of this, he did say, after asking him three times, do you love me? Oh, yeah, I love you. Feed my sheep. Do you love me? Yeah, I love you. Tend my lambs. Do you love me? Yes, Jesus, you know everything. I love you. He said, okay, feed my sheep. But know this, Peter. It's going to cost you. It's going to cost you. In Peter's case, it cost him his very life. But it yielded far more. For us, I think the recognition needs to be this, too, that if we love Jesus, wherever he tells us to go, wherever he sends us, whatever the cost, if we really love him, it's going to be okay. And that seems like a very callous thing to say, like, you're telling me that it could cost me my very life. You're telling me that it could cost me my livelihood, my popularity, my home, my wealth, my possessions. Yep, I am. But I think Jesus said, the surpassing worth of knowing me far outweighs anything that you could give up. Far outweighs, far exceeds. And I think our love for Jesus puts us at peace with that. It's a great way to end, right? I won't end there. I think I'll say this. I think we start with just asking Jesus, hey, Jesus, can you show me? Do I really love you? Do I really love you? Just show me. Tell me. Teach me. And if I don't, if I just like the idea of you, would you, would you create in me a true love for you? So that what you ask is more important than what I desire. So that what you demand is more important than what I'm going to give up. And so that the things that you love, I love more than anything I've ever seen. Do I really love you? Because I think at the end of the day, we also have to confess this. A like for the Christ is man-made. But a love for Jesus is something we can't engineer. He has to do that. He has to put that in us. Because in and of ourselves, we're just not capable. It's not possible. It's not in our sin-broken DNA. 
but it is in Jesus's, and he wants to do it. And so maybe we just need to start with the question, do I really love you? Show me. Show me. Teach me. And then just set me loose. Our city needs it. Our neighborhoods, they need it. Your children, your grandchildren, your coworkers, they need you to be set loose in the name of Jesus. They need to know, they need to hear, they need to comprehend that you love them like Christ loves them so that they may too understand and feel, perceive, experience restoration, being made right, being made whole, not asked to pay back. That's our call. That's our purpose, and that's Jesus. God, we love you. We thank you for your word. We thank you, God, that you offer something that we can't, that we can't make, that we can't engineer, and sometimes we don't even understand. And God, to be honest, I'm at great peace with that, that you're bigger, you're better, um, you're beyond our understanding. God, I thank you for your word, and I thank you for the fact that your word, your truth, illuminates the fact that we're often wrong, that we sin. But you're waiting just to hear that we love you. We're sorry. We confess. We repent. We turn from that. Turn to you and your purpose. God, I pray for both of these faith families to embrace the purpose that you've set us on, to embrace the mission that is yours, that you've asked us to join instead of the other way around. And God, I pray that this neighborhood would be affected, that your kingdom would grow here. I pray that Main Street would be affected and your kingdom would grow there. And Father, I pray in our lives we would find great satisfaction in just answering, yes, Jesus, I love you. Yes, Jesus, I love you. Yes, Jesus, I love you. And I will feed your sheep. I will tend your lambs. I will remember who you've made me to be. Thank you, God, for Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.